ago, uh, Pastor Aubrey asked me if I would share my story and my testimony with you this morning. And uh, even though I've shared my story uh, many times over the past 12 years at AA meetings, Celebrate Recovery meetings, treatment centers, uh, I really wasn't sure what I was going to say to you. Um, I just, I had to take a step back and try to evaluate what it is that I felt God wanted me to convey this morning. Um, fortunately, in recovery, we have a, a blueprint for times like these for what you're supposed to do. And that is you're supposed to share experience, strength, and hope. And you can see in the bulletin, that's what I entitled that this morning. Experience, strength, and hope. So my, my experience this morning stems from the fact that I'm a Christian who suffers from alcoholism and addiction. My, uh, <clears throat> my strength comes from the person of Christ. And uh, it's on my reliance on his power and following the path that he has laid before me that I have strength this morning. My hope is simply demonstrating what Christ has managed to accomplish in and through me in recovery, which is basically a testimony to his power and his sovereignty. By the time we get to this point in our adulthood, most of us have kind of etched Philippians 1.6 into our brains, which is the uh, he who began a good work and you will carry it on uh, to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And I do firmly believe, uh, as I stand before you today, that uh, that is what he's actively doing in my life. Um, I do want to say something to the congregation and anybody who might be watching this remotely. And uh, that is, I'm going to try to avoid as much as possible any graphic descriptions of my past behavior, because that's not really what this is about. Um, but by the same token, I'm going to be blunt and I'm going to be direct. And uh, the reason is, um, I'm, not, I'm not here to make anybody uncomfortable, but uh, if, if it's impossible for you to see the miraculous work that Christ has done in my life and you ha unless you have some kind of vague understanding of what my life used to be. Um, uh, normally when I share my story, it's solely to my fellow brothers and sisters in recovery. And today I have a little bit more of a diverse um, audience, if you will. And so uh, I just want to say from the outset that my hope and my prayer is that everyone here, no matter where you are in this thing, uh, that you will take away something, that you will latch onto something that you can apply to your own life because uh, that's really, uh, God is here speaking to everybody this morning, not just those who suffer from the same thing that, uh, uh, that I have suffered. Um, the principles that I have learned in recovery, um, they actually originated in Scripture. And um, those principles have impacted my life with Christ. And conversely, my walk with Christ has impacted my relationships with those in recovery. So it's kind of always been this two-way street. And uh, that's kind of what I want to get across this morning. Um, about, uh, I think it was two and a half weeks ago, um, I crossed the, th crossed the threshold of 12 years of sobriety. Um, oh, thank you. I mean... So, sometimes I like to break it down into smaller components. Actually, today represents 4,400 days. Um, that's 144 months. It's 105,000 plus hours. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because, yeah, 12 years, in one sense, it seems like a long time, but really that's a fraction of my life. Um, so there's a lot to talk about there. It was actually 33 years ago, this month, uh, that I attended my first uh, recovery-related meeting. Uh, that was an AA meeting up in Dallas, so I kind of think of myself as a highly experienced newcomer in all of this. Um, uh, thank you again, Aubrey, for allowing me to come here. Whenever I, whenever I do share my story, I always pause. I do this every time. I try to pause and pray and consider what my motivations are. Why am I standing before you doing this? 
Um, I have to check my motives. You know, is it because I think you're going to be suitably impressed that I haven't taken a drink in 12 years? Um, is it House of Hope men that I think you have a much better chance of staying sober if you hear the pearls of wisdom that I'm going to pearl your way this morning? I mean, I hope not. I hope that's not my motivation. But the thing is, for the better part of my life, I have deceived myself, and I've tried to deceive others. So I can't tell you with 100% surety that my motives are pure this morning. But I can tell you that I'm here, and I'm very, very grateful, and I'm here to share some experience, strength, and hope. Um, uh, evangelist uh, D.T. Niles once famously said um, that uh, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that really applies to recovery as well. You know, those of us who are suffering from this thing, we bring somebody else who's suffering along and we say, hey, this is where I found the bread. Um, I hope you can, you can use it as well. Uh, so, all that having been said, 2009 <clears throat> kicked off with kind of a bang. My uh, wife and I got some pretty devastating news, and that was that our then 16-year-old child was suffering from alcoholism and addiction. And uh, I know, statistically speaking, there are people here who have been down that road. I'm sure you House of Hope guys have got loved ones in your family many of you who have suffered as well. And uh, we weren't sure what to do, but we did find ourselves in a matter of days driving up to central Oklahoma to drop that child off into a three-month stint at a treatment center there. So imagine my surprise a month and a half later when I found myself in my own facility uh, in the Texas Hill Country. So now imagine a woman and uh, one weekend, this woman's having to drive 450 miles north to Guthrie, Oklahoma to hang out with uh, her child uh, at a family weekend at a treatment center. And then the following weekend, having to drive 250 miles west to the hill country to hang out at a treatment center at a family weekend with her husband. Uh, that's my wife, and that's how 2009 started for her. Um, so that's pretty crazy, uh, but that's really not where the story starts. That's where 2009 started. I do think that it's important for me to share the things that led to the point where I turned my will and my life over to the care of Christ. Um, but I try not to dwell on it more than necessary. Um, a number of years ago, I heard a speaker at a conference. And I don't know how long he spoke because I had to leave after the first hour. <laughs> but um, within that first hour, um, he was still talking about all the things that led him to the point where he surrendered, but he hadn't surrendered yet. So I never got to the point where I heard him talk about the solution. And um, I'm not criticizing the guy, uh, because let me tell you, his history was a lot more flashy than mine. Uh, he had poverty. Uh, he had incarcerations. He had multiple prison breaks in his story. Um, I'm, I don't have that stuff. Um, but the reason I point that out to you is because it doesn't matter. We talk about talking about uh, that we match up on the similarities, not the differences. We have to look at the similarities, not the differences. And at my core, I was the same alcoholic as that guy. It just hadn't manifested itself in the same things yet. Okay? And how does that apply to us? Well, when you think about Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. You may have sins that are plastered over CNN, 24-hour news cycle, or Fox News, or you may have something hidden in your heart that nobody knows about, but you are still the same sinner. And so uh, that applies to all of us this morning. I, uh, I grew up in Dallas. I shared a few months ago 
sort of my story with the congregation about my relationship with music and my, the impact it had on me as a believer. And so some of this stuff may be a, a repeat to you, but I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Um, I had a good loving home. My parents were not alcoholic, although I did find out years later that it goes down both sides of my family tree, uh, some of whom eventually uh, found the solution and some who didn't. Um, but uh, they did the best they could for us. Uh, not everything was always rosy. There were some, my mom had some emotional issues and, it, and there were some issues there that caused uh, some long lasting effects in my life, but they did the best they could. Now, at that time, at least, they were agnostics, but we still did go to church. On Christmas, Easter, sometimes they would get on these kicks where we'd go for a month or a month uh, or two. And uh, I'm not sure why they did that, except I think they just thought as parents it was the right thing to do to take your kids to church. Um, but because I didn't have that relationship with God modeled in my life, um, I also uh, did not have a relationship uh, with God myself until the age of 16. And as I mentioned a few months ago, I had a very close friend named Scott, uh, became very close with his family. It was through spending time with them and starting to attend church with them that I began to realize that I was a hopeless sinner. And it was by spending time with them that I realized that the only way that I could have freedom from my sins and a relationship with God would be to trust fully and fully in the person of Christ him and him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. And I, I prayed with Scott one night, and I did that, and I became on fire for God. I joined their church. I got baptized in their church. I started attending functions at least three times a week, you know, church services and choir rehearsals and youth group and everything like that. Um, but there was an issue. There was something else going on in my life at that time that was not really on my radar yet. And... Um, that was this, uh, this idea of the fact that I had been passed down um, alcoholism and addiction in, in my family. Um, now, uh, at age 15 is when I took my first drink. I'm not going to go into detail on that, except to say that the way I drank, the first time I drank, I drank, in retrospect, alcoholically. Okay? Basically, the way I drank that day set the template for how I would could, my relationship with alcohol would be for the next 25 years, for the next quarter century. Um, and um, the thing was, I didn't immediately drink a lot, okay? It escalated gradually over high school. Um, but the problem was that uh, I was essentially already starting to live a double life. I had my, my church friends I was hanging out with at least three times a week. I also had a separate set of friends that I was doing something else with several times a week, and I didn't see the disconnect in that. Now. You, you standing on the outside go, well, wouldn't that be obvious? Well, it wasn't obvious to me. Um, so it's this, at this point, I kind of put the pause button on, since I'm talking to a, di a diverse group, and talk about what Scripture says about this. Now, we, we're all familiar with Ephesians 5.18, where Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, it leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with what? Spirit. Holy Spirit. We all know that. Okay, so Scripture clearly commands, don't get drunk. Okay, but we also know there's plenty of drinking in the Bible. We know what Jesus' first miracle was. We know that he drank. We know the disciples drank. So we know there's not a prohibition against it. Um, the deal is that this, this condition, if you will, it has a physical component. It has a mental component. And it most definitely has a spiritual component because the solution is spiritual. The solution is the person of Christ. 
But the physical components, I always try to get concise definitions so I can try to help explain to somebody who doesn't suffer from this what the physical aspect of it is. And I came across this a number of years ago, and I've always liked it when it comes to addiction and alcoholism. It's basically, it's the result of a brain imbalance in a person's biochemical configuration. And um, this imbalance leaves the person who has it susceptible to seeking out substances in order to just sustain a normal mood, okay? And in order also to regulate distress states. So somebody who's physically has this, that's what they're gonna do. That's gonna be their default position, scientifically speaking. And here's my word of caution. So you may be thinking to yourself, okay, are you saying, Mark, since you have this thing physically, then you're excused from drunkenness because you can't help it? No, I am not saying that. In fact, I'm saying something more than that completely. I'm saying not only is it also a sin for me to get drunk, as it says in Ephesians, I'm saying for me, it's a sin to take a drink, okay? Why? Because I know what's gonna happen. Okay, the phenomenon of craving is going to kick in and I'm going to want more and more and bad stuff is going to happen. I've proven it time and time again. So my wife, who does not suffer from this, she can hang out with her girlfriend, she can have a glass of wine. It's not an issue for her. For me it is. It is a sin for me uh, to take a drink. Fortunately for me, at this time in my life, I told myself I'm in complete control of the chaos. Um, I didn't drink for quite some time. As I said, it escalated through high school, um, but I told myself, hey, you know, I, uh, I'm graduating towards the top of my class. I got a really solid score on my SATs. I've got myself into a good private college. I don't have an issue. I'm in complete control of the chaos. The problem is, I do believe that the moment I became a believer, I believe my life became a spiritual battlefield. You know, Romans 7.15, where Paul famously says, you know, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. That was me, you know. He um, <clears throat> uh, basically, at this point in my life, I thought just because I, I made it to this point, everything is okay. But uh, the issue is that uh, by my spring semester, my freshman year, I was suicidal, I was in debt, and I was in real, real big trouble. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives this list of things, people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkards, swindlers, slanderers, you know, this nice list. Um, I've kind of like checked off all those boxes on that list by my spring semester of my freshman year of school. So um, I, uh, I remember writing a half-hearted suicide note to my parents and just driving. I just drove east with hardly any gas in my car, not knowing what I was going to do. Eventually, I had to turn around, and my parents confronted me. They are not stupid people. They knew something was up. They figured it had to do with drugs and or alcohol, and so they confronted me on that, and I said, no, 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 no. I don't, that's not, that's not me. Um, and they said, well, <laughs> if that's not it, then you're crazy. You have some serious problems. And I said, that's it, I'm crazy. I was more willing to check myself into a psychiatric hospital than I was to admit that I had a problem with substances. Okay, here's the problem with that. If you ever check yourself into a place like that and you're surrounded by severe schizophrenics and manic depressives and people who are serious, seriously mentally ill, you find out real quickly, oh wait, this isn't where I meant to be. So I raised my hand up, I said, okay, okay, 
yeah, treatment, fine, get me out of here, please, now. So I did. I went, I went to a place, um, and um, they, I had kind of an interesting experience there. The problem was that I was not ready, okay? I did, I did give up certain things in my life that were weighing me down, but I, I always held on to alcohol. I thought, you know what? I'm not even the legal drinking age yet. I can't give up this yet. There's just too much of my life left to live. Um, but I did what we call white-knuckling it. It basically means under my own willpower, I was saying, I can control this. And you know what? To a certain degree, for a certain amount of time, I did control it, at least from the outside. I moved down here to College Station, and um, within 10 years, I was a regular upstanding citizen, sort of. I, um, I was married. I had four kids. I was drawing a nice salary as a software engineer at a company. I was a longtime pianist for a, a local church in College Station. And um, I didn't have any DWIs. I didn't have any accidents. So who could deny that I had my life together? Nobody. Except for the people who lived underneath the same roof as me. Um, you see, uh, in order to manage the madness that my life had become, I became deceitful. I became conniving. I became self-righteous, uh, self-centered to the extreme. Um, alcohol had become basically a paradox for me. It was my one source of stability, and it was also my one weapon of mass destruction. And um, everybody has their own pattern. For me, I was the quintessential closet alcoholic. I would binge drink alone, and then I would orchestrate all these complex methods for covering it up. And uh, the reason I would cover it up is because if somebody found out, they would disapprove. And if they would disapprove, they would say, you need to stop. And I was not going to stop. One of my biggest roadblocks that I had uh, during this time in my life was the reaction that certain other people gave to me, especially Christian, Christian men who I trusted, whose opinion that I valued. They would come up to me and they would say, well, Mark, <laughs> you don't look like an alcoholic, as if an alcoholic has a telltale look, that little thing that gives them away. Nobody who has suffered from this has ever said that to me. It's only been people from the outside, but the problem is I believed my own press. I was like, yeah, huh. I don't look like an alcoholic. I don't have any DWIs. I don't have any of that stuff. So um, I continued on. Now, I would have periods during these stretches where I would abstain, sometimes for extended periods of time. Aubrey said, I've been here for 20 plus years. Yes, I came here in 2000, and I put down the bottle for years when I came here. I thought I was giving it up to God, but I really wasn't. I was really still doing it under my own power. And the problem with that is, if you truly do suffer from this affliction, eventually, it's going to come back. And, uh, and it did. It did. Um, I uh, stopped going to meetings. I stopped talking to people in recovery. I stopped doing the things that people had told me to do. And I was surprised when I ended up with a bottle in my hand. And the problem is, anybody who's been a part of this knows that if you stop for a while, when you start back up, you start right where you left off. It's not like you suddenly get this grace period where everything's okay for a while. It escalates quickly. Um, so fast forward to 2009, where I started speaking this morning. Um, so my daughter is in treatment, um, and, I, and I take this to be totally my fault. 
uh, and it, which is partially true, because I passed this gene down to her, and uh, she grew up in an alcoholic home, so I am, you know, throwing the blame game at myself. And the, and the issue with that is it threw me deeper and deeper into the bottle. Because in, in order to just mask that feeling of shame, mask that anger that I had with myself, and I had true anger, um, I didn't want to feel that. And the only way that I knew to cover that up was to drink. And uh, I was not doing well at that time. And I am ashamed to say, there are people in this congregation that saw me in town during that time, saw me not doing well. Um, Longtime counselor that I had called me into her office and she said, Mark, you need inpatient treatment. And I said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I've got two jobs. I've got like a regular job job and I'm like, I'm music pastor for this church and I have a child who's in treatment. You, I mean, no, the timing is not good on this. Well, let's talk about this later. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. When your child comes home from treatment, that child needs to come home to a sober home. You got to go. Um, I still wasn't convinced. It took a little prodding from some other people in my life, one of them who was sitting a few rows back. Um, but I did go. I did, I did make a decision um, at that point. And I need to share this little story. This was, uh, this was, sharing this with my church was probably, probably the hardest thing of all, figuring out what to do about this, because I love the people here so much, and I, I didn't know what was going to happen with all of that, but I knew I had to do it. And our pastor at the time was this guy, Pastor Fred. And I don't, raise your hand if you remember Pastor Fred. Does anybody, okay, good, okay. Um, Pastor Fred was this incredibly sweet, wonderful guy. He was our interim pastor at the time. And I came up to him and I said, Pastor Fred, and I just told him the whole thing. And um, he was very, very sweet, very understanding. And um, he said, well, you go do what you got to do. And I told him, I said, look, I said, when I come back after a month, I don't know if you still want me to participate here. You make that decision, but I've got to go. And he said, I understand. And I said, you know, the most important thing to me is that I need to get, gather my choirs together. I had a bell choir and a vocal choir. And I said, I need to pull them together. And I need to tell them what I'm doing. Because I think, you know, I'm very close to these people on a personal level. I work with them week in, week out. And, um, and he said, okay. He said, you know, you might just tell them you're taking medical leave. And I was like, that's a great idea. Medical leave. Whew. Yes. Then I got to thinking about it. I had been around the program enough to know that we talk about rigorous honesty. I had been around enough to know that admitting that I'm powerless over this and that my life is unmanageable has to be a straight ahead, 100% honest thing. So I did gather my two choirs together and I did just tell them the truth about where I was going and what I was doing. And I remember Pastor Fred, <laughs> it was in here, and he showed up, and I think he was sitting towards the back. He showed up for support, and I, I could see his eyes getting real big from the back. Like, oh no, he's saying it. But I had to. I had to do it for me as much as for them. So um, I uh, went to this place. It was in the Hill Country, like I said. Um, uh, had incredible experience there. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about that, except to say, even though it wasn't a Christian treatment center per se, they did cater to their Christian clients with a lot of different activities. And they had a chapel there on the grounds. And we had church every Sunday. And every morning, we had this thing called Seekers, which was a Bible study. So any of the Christians who were clients there could meet up. And we had this Bible study. And one week, I got to lead it. 
And the church services on Sunday, they found out I played piano, and they immediately, of course, stuck me in there playing piano for all the Sunday churches. And man, it was just a powerful, powerful experience. Um, one of the things that's great about that is that you're completely removed from the internet and from your phones, from everything that could distract you, and you get to focus on your relationship with God. And I'm not going to get into steps and everything this morning except to say that there is one step that is really, really important that not only applies to people in recovery, it applies to the whole, the whole Christian community. And that is making a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of Christ. Um, on the one hand, that seems like a very basic thing, right? Of course we need to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. But it's one thing to say that, and it's one thing to put it into practice with all aspects of your life, which I had not done. There's so many things I said, oh yeah, God, you can have this, but I'm going to hold on to this for just a little bit. Couldn't do that. And it was there, at this place, that I prayed with other Christians, um, that I completely got a grasp of what that meant to do, and I did it. I made that decision. God, you take it all, please. I've made a mess of it. And sometimes... Even 12 years later, I still wrestle things back, and I still have to pray that prayer um, again. But, uh, but thankfully, I did that then, and my life was transformed. But the thing is, being inside those, those gates is the easy part. Then I had to leave. <laughs> I had to go back to the world. I was flying on what we call the pink cloud, where I was like, okay, I've had spiritual transformation. I've got this. Um, Christ is doing for me what I can't do for myself. Remember when Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Um, if you remain in me and I in you, uh, then you're going to bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And I, uh, and I had to hold on to that for dear life, remembering every moment of every day, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Fortunately, when I got out, I got connected with good people. A guy who is still my sponsor today, he's a believer as well, but he, he really came alongside me and showed me exactly uh, what I needed to do in order to work this deal. Um, and it was at that point that I realized that God had an additional calling for me. It's amazing what God can do when he can use the things in your life that have pulled you down to help others. Um, he showed me that I need to come alongside those men who are suffering, particularly Christian men, and say, look, you may be in the depths of despair, but Christ can deliver you from this. I need to show them that there is hope. If there's hope for me, there's hope for you. Um, it's also given me a profound empathy for those who suffer. You know, I never thought I would be the one who would receive that desperate call um, to pick up a guy who's in downtown Bryan after an all-night drug binge and drive him somewhere. I never thought I would get that call, be that guy who gets that call to go to that seedy motel room where the guys hold himself up with booze and try to talk him off the ledge. Um, and I've gotten opportunities to do that and things like that over the last 12 years. The thing is, though, I'm not a magic cure person, okay? I'm, I'm not telling you that I have any ability to do anything at all. In fact, one of those people I just mentioned went to prison. Um, the other person I mentioned about the motel, he died a year later. Um, you know, it's not, it's not in my wheelhouse to do what God decides he's going to do uh, in his sovereignty. But I need to heed the call no matter what, because people who are in that condition, they are much more likely to listen to somebody who's walked that same road, somebody who's walked through that forest and come through the other side, than they are somebody else. Um, <clears throat> I'm not here to give any advice today, not to anybody. Um, but if I had to say one thing, 
few men from House of Hope, it would be this. I would urge you to hold on to your experiences because your ability to share those experiences with other people can have an impact far beyond anything you can imagine. Okay? And not only are you serving them, but you're actually serving yourself in the process. Um, you can have a phenomenal impact on someone else's life, and you don't even know who that person is yet. And you probably already have. I'm sure you already have. You know, being with each other like you had been for a however long length of time that you've already been together, you've had an impact on each other that I just can't even imagine. Um, I'm still actively involved in the recovery community today. I go to meetings at least once a week. I stay in close personal contact with others. Um, one of the best things that I think I do is I closely associate with people who I normally wouldn't associate with, you know, or you wouldn't think I would. Because I'll tell you what, I've learned not to judge anybody from the outside. They might have a rough-looking exterior, but the words that come out of their mouth are practical, and they have sometimes have deep wisdom that, that I never would have even considered before. Um, and uh, one of the things we talk about is we talk about placing principles before personalities. Um, that means that when we get together, we don't talk about the latest political issue. We don't talk about what's dominating the 24-hour news cycle. We're there to serve one another and to lift one, each other, uh, lift one another up. And I think this idea needs to, to apply to all of us, uh, every one of the believers that is here today. You know, so somebody, some people in this congregation may be doing well financially. Uh, some others may not. Uh, some people in this congregation may be suffering from emotional issues. Some people may have stability. Um, some may feel comfortable wearing masks. Some people may not. Um, some, we have personality differences, <laughs> obviously, right? Some of us are quiet and introspective. Some of us are more blunt and outspoken. Um, but are we going to re realize that all of us, if we have Lord Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, that we're all brothers and sisters? I was, uh, <clears throat> I was looking at the front page of our church website this week. I don't know how, many, how recently some of you have looked at it, but right on the front middle, the home page, when you look at it, it says, we are his church led by his spirit and love taught by his word, living as his body, serving to his glory. And I, the reason I'm emphasizing his is because the word his is all caps in each of those. And um, my earnest hope and prayer, folks, is that everybody here, from the senior pastor to the music pastor to the tech crew to the WANA leaders to the Sunday school leaders, no matter what your job is here, um, that you will take those words to heart and that we can all agree as a congregation we are his church, led by his spirit and love, taught by his word, living as his body, serving to his glory. I appreciate you allowing me to share a little bit this morning. In the past 12 years, I've, uh, I've attended countless meetings. I've had countless meetings with my sponsor and other people in recovery. I've journaled on a daily basis. But I, the thing is, recovery is not about checklists. It's not about keeping you know, numbers. Um, for me, it's about one thing and one thing only, and that's spiritual transformation. You know, I started this morning talking about that quote from Philippians. In that same letter, Paul states that you need to continue to work out your salvation with fear and what? Trembling. For it is God who, who, who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. And, uh, 
That's what my life is about today, as much as possible, falling in line with God's primary purpose and design for my life, which is to glorify him, which is to fellowship with him, which is to proclaim the gospel to a fallen world. And in my case, there's an additional addendum to that, okay? I'm called to minister to those who suffer from alcoholism and addiction. Um, I set my work aside regardless of how busy I am when I get that phone call um, because I know that that is God, what God has called me to. Um, when he does that, God is served, lives are changed, and um, my desire to pick up is eradicated for today. Um, I'll close with this. I can't begin to tell you um, the value that I have surrounding myself with people um, who are we're doing this deal. And yesterday morning, <laughs> I was at a meeting, and there's this woman at the meeting who's a believer. And um, she gave me permission to, to tell, talk to you about this. Um, she, um, she's not only in recovery herself, but her husband was in and out of recovery as well. And he died tragically six weeks ago. Um, he's younger than me. Um, and she was there, and she was sharing a lot of things. And she was talking a lot about the concept of fear. Uh, which is something that all of us who've, who've walked this road deal with in spades, all kinds of fear. And um, she said that she, you know, ever since the death of her husband, she's, she's been every morning, she's described fear this way. She said, fear is basically this limo driver that pulls up to my house every morning in his luxurious vehicle and says, hey, I'm here to drive you around today, wherever you want to go. And um, she said it's only been by turning her will and her life over to the care of God that she goes, no. You don't need to drive me around today. You've, God's got me. She told me after the meeting that not only has she found a calling in ministering to people who are in recovery, now she's found a calling in ministering to widows of people who have suffer, previously suffered from addiction. And that's what she's doing today. Um, I heard from another, there was another woman who was also a believer who was at this same meeting. This is a very good meeting. And she said, um, she said, you know what? When I first turned my will and my life over to the care of God, I was afraid. I was afraid of what God was going to ask me to do. I, was I didn't want to go on to the mission field in Africa, and I was afraid he was going to call me out to do something like that. And I know I should want to do that, but I was afraid. And she said, but then he started opening the door here, a door there, a door here, a door there. And I realized he was asking me to be a missionary to people in recovery. And that's my mission field today. Um, so by hearing stories like this on a weekly basis, um, I'm spurred on, just like in Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. That's our calling, all of us here today, no matter what affliction or sin we're dealing with. I have a phenomenally long way to go in my walk with Christ. Um, I've had more than one setback these past 12 years. I may not have picked up a drink, but I've done some pretty... Um, some, some things I should not do, at least mentally. Um... But uh, the thing is, my perspective is much, much different now. It may have been 33 years since my first uh, relationship with other people in recovery started, but it's taken me this long to realize I'm not in complete control of the chaos. God is in control of the chaos. There is no joyment. There is no fulfillment in this life apart from relationship with my Savior. It's through his work in my life that I have the peace that passes all understanding today. You guys are wonderful. You mean a lot to me. This was... Uh, this was a challenge for me to, um, to open up in this way. It shouldn't be. I've done it before, but I, I was very apprehensive. I was telling my wife last night um, about coming before you. I appreciate you having a willing ear.
Uh, I do say if you have any questions or issues with what I've said, uh, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. Email me, call me, my, my information's in the bulletin. For the next song, um, I was trying to decide what, what we might do. And uh, it was, it's so interesting that Larry should bring up 2 Corinthians 12. Because there is, uh, in Paul's affliction, he's talking about what the Lord said to him. And what the Lord said to him was there, My grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. And that's exactly what this next song is. It's a song uh, from when I first became a believer. This was sort of one of the hits was playing on the radio. You may or may not be familiar with it, uh, but we're going to go ahead and put the words on here for you. And uh, I encourage you to sing along as you feel led. It's called His Strength is Perfect. Perfect. 